All right. So are you ready to be baptized? All right. Uh, seriously, if, if that is not a step of faith that you've done in your life, um, it is something that's sort of beyond encouraged. It's something that Jesus commanded us to do as in a, that outward expression of the transformation that he has made in our life. And that it's never too early, never too late, right, uh, to, to do that. Uh, when you read the story in the New Testament, the book of Acts, it says people were belie- they believed and then they were baptized. And there have been people who here at Cold Springs Church who have believed a long time ago and said, you know what, I've never been baptized, and they have done that. And there have been people who have said, you know what, I was baptized when I was a kid, and I have had a new encounter, a new experience of Jesus. And I want to express that uh, once again publicly uh, to people, and they've been baptized. And so uh, there is just tremendous opportunity to, to do that. And so we would love to partner with you. We'd love to be in, involved in that conversation. You can talk to Steve or Esther, who are always out in the lobby uh, between services, um, and they will um, share a little bit with you and talk about how to, to take that next step. Uh, if you use that welcome card that we asked you to fill out earlier, you can um, ask that question or say you want to be baptized there on that card. We'll get a hold of you. But we would love to, to uh, be a part of that in your life. So, And uh, don't we have just a creative, awesome team that puts you know, fun things together? So uh, we have fantastic people here. So that was great. Um, let, me, let me pray for us. Jesus, um, we do thank you that you are holy that you are Lord God Almighty, and that we can come uh, together this morning and, and be before you. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit will empower us, will open up our minds and our ears, that you will help us to be fully here, fully present. Whatever we brought into this room, that we will surrender and lay at your feet, so that we can hear your Spirit speaking to our spirit, our soul, our mind, our heart today. And that we would be just a little bit more transformed because we have experienced you in community together. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Anybody here uh, married or in a relationship with somebody? Okay. Have you ever had an argument with them? All right. Yeah. So, I mean, people are pointing already, right? Uh, um, Wow. Sheesh. I see elbows going, that type of thing. Uh, have you ever started the argument with the word you? How'd that go for you? Probably not really well, right? So then, you know, it, it sort of escalates, and then you go to marriage counseling, and the marriage counselor says, no, 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 no. You don't start the conversation with you, particularly that way. You, is you start with I. What, what I feel, what I'm experiencing is, you know, right? You know, so you learn those sort of communication skills. And then you, but you're thinking in your mind, you, right? You know, it's like, um, so it's a, it's a process. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing going on there. And then, and then, you know, you sort of evolve and you grow and you go, we, you know, we, you know, you put the, it's the team, we're, we're together in this. I, you, we. You know, it's, it's where you start, you know, sort of matters, right? It can shape the conversation, it can shape where things go. This morning, we're continuing a series that we began uh, last week on First Peter, of 
this idea of Jesus first in our life and the difference that Jesus being first makes for us. And so this morning we're continuing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And if you, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you, invite you to open up your Bible to that. Uh, if you're using the Bible app, um, all of our notes are in there. Uh, when you came in, you should have gotten a program. There are some sermon notes in there that you can write uh, things down, uh, take notes on. And as we come to this, uh, the beginning of the letter, and we saw the introduction and sort of Peter laying the foundation last week. As we come into here, what we see is, is that where you start matters, and Peter doesn't start with an I, you, or a we. He starts with God. He starts with God. And so if you look at, at, at verse 3 in 1 Peter 1, I'm going to read first from the message, sort of transliteration, Eugene Peterson's sort of, um, of interpretation of, of Scripture, of the Bible. And he, he writes this. He says, What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this Father of our Master Jesus. The ESV, um, which is more of a, uh, a translation of the original language of Greek, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's one of the interesting things. If, if you were to um, be reading this in that original language of Koine Greek, which is, was a trade language of the day that, of which uh, the, a lot of the New Testament, most of the New Testament was written in, um, that what you would see in these next 10 verses that we're going to look at this morning is, is that there is, in our English translation, is broken up into these different sentences we're going to see. But in the, in the Greek, there's no punctuation. It is one long sentence. And it's, this, it's sort of this exuberance, this excitement of Peter as he begins to write this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being regarded through faith for salvation, ready for to be revealed in the last times. And then he just continues, keeps going. When's the last time you got excited about Jesus? When's the last time you got excited about the evidence or the work of God in your life or your family, your marriage, your, your kids, in the world that we're living today? You know, it would be sort of, it would be called gushing forth praise, what's going on here with Peter. He, he has had an encounter. Remember, you know, Peter is one of Jesus' first disciples, and he had this pretty checkered, you know, relationship with Jesus. He's the one that, you know, sort of denied Jesus. He's the one who rebuked Jesus and got rebuked by Jesus, got called, you know, Satan. You know, he's referred to as Satan, get behind me. Jesus said that to Peter. I mean, it's not sort of on your high on your resume, spiritual resume, right? And yet, here he has walked with Jesus for 30 30 years, and he still, he still is filled with an exuberance about, about Jesus. And he begins with God. He points the, the readers, the listeners of this letter to look at Jesus, look at God, put Jesus first. And, and he begins with this, where it all starts, of the salvation that we have in Jesus, that it, that it matters. I'll read it a little bit slower this time, starting in verse 3 down to verse 5. 
It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, in those first couple of verses, Peter introduced this idea, or he, he continued to put forth this idea of election, is, is that God has, has elected us. He has called us. He has invited us personally into his relationship with him, into his kingdom. According to his great mercy, Peter writes, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. That if you are a person of faith, if, that if you have responded to the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the work of God has been at work in your life. God has caused that. He has moved in you and moved in the universe around you to encounter him. It's God's mercy that has brought you to this place of salvation. It is God who caused us to be born again. It is God who is the giver and sustainer of life. Where do you begin? It's always a good, it's always a good thing to begin with God. It's always a good thing because... You know, I, I, I always, um, you know, I said this, uh, I've, I've shared this story, you know, through the years I've been here, is that um, when I was in college and I was involved in discipleship and all this thing, and I had this divine encounter, really a divine encounter, a call to ministry in Australia, a very powerful personal experience in 1985, and I came back and I met Pam, and um, we started dating, and we got married in 1987. So, uh, so... You know, coming off of this, you know, big spiritual experience, God really humbled me, and I think, man, I'm doing pretty good. It was actually one of my problems, spiritual pride, by the way. But I, I'm like, I, I'm, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty spiritual. I'm pretty, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Then I got married. And I'm like, wow, I am selfish. I, I want it to, I want it to be all, I, I have, I'm living with this person who, wants me to be focused on her. I want it to be focused on me. And it was like a whole nother level of discipleship. It's like, oh, I need more Jesus. And then, and then you know, we were married for, for a few years, and we had a child. And I thought I was doing pretty good. I was like, okay, I sort of got this marriage thing down. And now, and now then I had a child, and it's like, this child really demands it be all about them. They can't do anything. I mean, what are they good for, right? I mean, just lay there, look cute, all that stuff. This was a feed him, change the diaper, all this stuff. I'm like, man, I need more Jesus. And we had another child, and then, and then we adopted two children. I'm like, wow, I really need Jesus. And then we became foster parents. I'm like, I don't know if there's enough Jesus. I have so much need of Jesus. It's God's mercy. It's God who causes us to be born again. It's God who is the giver and sustainer of life. 
we need God. We need more of Jesus in our life. As, as Peter continues, he reminds us of our salvation. And as we come together, it, it is important that we remember that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to our hope as followers of Jesus. As people who have God at the center of our life. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through through. Not what you've done, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now here's a really important question. Can Christianity have a dead Jesus? If the archaeologists went and dug up all of Israel, everywhere around Jerusalem, and then finally decided, oh, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus' bones. Would, would we have Christianity? We would not have Christianity. Now, I had a, a professor in, at Oregon State in the religious department that he, he disagreed with that. He believed much more in a cosmic Jesus, that there was a cosmic Jesus. He was a great guy. He was a really a very fascinating, interesting guy. But, but that is not Christian theology. The resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is central to the belief of Jesus. There's only one faith that has a perfect, very much alive, resurrected Savior for all humanity. Only one, and it's Christianity. Islam does not have that. They have the prophet Muhammad. And Jesus actually didn't die. He swooned on the cross, according to Muslim theology. Buddhism, Buddhism does not. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Buddha's dead, and they're like, yeah, that's fine. Hinduism does not. They've got all kinds of gods all over the place. Judaism does not. And you go through, and even in some of the, the, the other ex, somewhat Christian expressions, like Mormonism, that, that's a whole different faith, a whole different view of Jesus. It's not the Jesus of Christianity. Jehovah's Witness, it is not the Jesus of Christianity. And it's addressed directly in the teaching of the early church. Because it's always been debated. Paul is very, very clear about the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because Paul, again, he addresses this really important, and it's a contemporary issue of, yeah, Jesus is a great historical figure, he's a really great man, he was a wise teacher, he was a sage, Period. And Paul says, no, that, that's not who Jesus was. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
So Paul is saying, I am an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. The bodily, physical, resurrected Jesus. Not a cosmic Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And then if you jump down to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because central to Christian theology, Christian belief is, is that not only is Jesus raised from the dead, he was the first fruits that you and I are going to be raised from the dead too through our faith in Jesus. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep is, is, was the term they used for having passed or died. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, listen to these words of what Paul says. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. That's some strong language. He says that if, if, if the bones of Jesus are somewhere buried in, in the nation of Israel, then everything that you believe, everything that you and I do, everything that I'm saying to you is essentially a lie. And we should be pitied above most, above all people. Salvation matters. And the resurrection of the dead is central to the belief that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died on that cross, that he was resurrected on the third day. And because of his resurrection, you and I get resurrection. We get life. I like that, amen. You can say that. And when, and when we recognize that, that there, this is not all there is. There is hope for something greater than what we are going through, what we are experiencing now, that there is an eternity that is waiting for us. That eternity gives us courage. Look at verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance, oh, this is First Peter 1 again. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, here's an interesting thing about the gospel of Jesus. This is an interesting thing about the, 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 the story of God in your life, is that it's all about you. You know what? Jesus died for you. He died for me. God personally knows you, and he personally loves you. And he loves you so much that he would sacrifice the most important, valuable thing that he had, which is his son. It's all about you. Now, here's the other part of that. It's not all about you. It's not all about you. Because it's not you first. It's not I first. It's God first. It is 
He loves you and he gave for you that he could be glorified, that he could be first. And that it's God's power that is holding you. Anybody here like movies? I know Isaac likes movies. Yeah. All right, anybody like action movies? Okay, so you know in the action movie, there's always a scene, there's, it's called the cliffhanger scene, right? Because most oftentimes, this actually involves a cliff and somebody hanging. So somebody's hanging off the cliff, and there's, a, there's the hero who's up there, and who's got him, and there's like, and, and, and you know, the, the person's hanging over and going, I can't hold on, I can't hold on, so I won't let you go, I've got you, I've got you. And then they're like, oh, dang. But then that person has a parachute, and they're like, you know, because, you know, the movie's got to continue on. You see, here's the thing, is, is that, has anybody ever been in a cliffhanger scene in your life? And you're like, I can't hold on, I can't hold on, and, and, and you know, and, and God's holding on. And you know who the only person stressed out is? You. God is not stressed out. It is not a cliffhanger scene for God. It's like, yeah, I got you. I got you. I'm not letting go. There are no slipping, you know, sweaty fingers going on here that's like slowly, slowly slipping away. You can't slip away from me. Jesus isn't under any tension whatsoever in your life right now. He is not worried about his ability to take you home, to deliver you home. Never has been, never will be. And that should give us some confidence because it's not about you. And it's all about you. In this thing of faith, one of the challenging things that we find in our life is when we find ourselves in the crucible. When we find ourselves in those cliffhanger scenes, right, where, where we feel like we're just barely hanging on and we're wondering, will God hang on? And we're going, through, we're going through difficulty, we're going through challenges, we're going, experiencing stress. And the crucible isn't fun, but, but what Peter reminds us is that it's actually necessary. It's a part of God's work in the world and in your life and in our life as a community of people of faith. First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this, in this secure, unalterable salvation of which there is no cliffhanger on the on the perspective of God, only in our perspective. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, by the way, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in your benefit, in your good. Oops. Where do you start? You start with God. So that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you know, I think it's actually a twofold thing there. Is that God is going to be, Jesus is going to be praised, honored, and glorified because he held on you're going to be praised, glorified, and honored as well. Now, I think it's really important to understand here is that the trials that Peter is talking about here are not 
life's hardships. They're not life's hardships. I mean, we just, you know, we live in a broken world and we go through difficult and challenging and hard things. And some of those come from our own choices. A lot of them come from our own choices. And some of them come from other people's choices that impact or affect our life. And that's not what Peter is addressing here in this letter and in this right here. As he, and he will continue to talk about suffering here. The trials that Peter is talking about is the suffering that you face because you are a follower of Jesus Christ and there is a cost. In, in Scott McKnight's um, his commentary, which I've been reading along with this, he was one of my seminary professors, somebody I highly respect. And then, but even talking to my friend Tom, who um, who has served in, in Kathy, who served overseas and served in Southeast Asia in some very difficult and challenging times, the the reflection is is that in Western Christianity, First Peter is rarely somebody's favorite book. But if you go to the persecuted world. First Peter is the book that they love the most because it speaks to their situation because particularly within the last couple hundred years as followers of Jesus in our culture, there hasn't been a great cost. One of the, and it's, it's, it's a minor cost. I remember, it, and it was, it was shocking experience to me because it was so unusual for me. And it happened when I was in Australia. Um, when I was studying in Australia in 1985, and I was walking down the street to go to church, and I had this little Bible, it was about this big, you know, and I was carrying it, and I was walking by a bus stop, and I walked by this guy who was standing there, and I'm Mr. Friendly, you know, from Huntington, Oregon, you know, 500 people. I'm now in Sydney, Australia, 4 million people. I'm still waving at people and saying hi, right? You know, that's because, you know, I'm a small town boy. I would talk to my roommates, and I'd say, I'd talk to people on the bus. He says, why do you do that? Why do you do that? You don't do that. You don't talk to people on public transportation. So I, I walked by this guy, and I said hi. I smiled at him, and I continued on walking down, and all of a sudden, here behind me, don't smile at me, you're a Christian. And I turned around, and he ducked into a storefront. I'm like, what? I've been persecuted. But it threw me off, right? I was like, the, I, I just said hi, and I'm carrying a Bible. I'm walking towards the church. That was enough to set him off. That's pretty minor. When I was in Uganda, I had the interaction with a Nigerian pastor who was studying in Uganda. And he told about when he was a young man, I told this story when I was reflecting on my time in Africa, of the time where the rebels were coming out of the mountains into his community and they were killing the Christians. And they said, we're going to come back next week and we are going to kill everybody in your church. And he's like, no, you're not. And he organized the men of the church, he says, whatever weapon you have, grab it. And we are going to guard the church. And a couple of people had guns. Guns are not very common there. And it was like swords and machetes and stuff like that, farming equipment. And they, they did. The, the rebels came out of the mountains and they came towards the church. And he said, fire your guns. And they fired the shots. And they real, the rebels realized, oh, they're serious about um, protecting the church. And, and they ran back into the mountains. But, but believers had been killed. That's suffering. 
That's the suffering that Peter was pointing towards even more so than he even knew was going to be laid before those who were following Jesus. And we have to be careful that we don't trivialize, trivialize the genuine suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing martyrdom because of their faith. Open Doors uh, is an organization that is dedicated to serving the um, persecuted church as well as, um, as well as Voice of the Martyrs. And Open Doors did a study in that, in this was uh, the, in 2021, the total number of Christian martyrs increased from 4,305 to 4,761. Christians lost their lives because they were Christians in the world. And then this, this is what they say. Keep in mind that this number is likely to be much lower than the actual reality because, especially in closed countries like North Korea and Afghanistan or, or conflict-ridden places like Somalia and Libya, killings are often done in secrecy and or go unreported. Our research for Open Doors 2021 World Watch List the most in-depth investigative report focusing on global Christian persecution available reveals that each day of the reporting period for the list from October 2019 to September 2020, an average of 13 Christians were violently killed for their faith. And if you go to their website, opendoorsusa.org, I think it's on there, or it's on the Voice of the Martyrs, there's a picture of five Nigerian men on their knees before they were executed. If you want to learn more about, um, you know, it's sort of a hard thing to look at, but one of the things that they say, the, the very first thing that persecuted Christians ask for is prayer, that you would pray for them, because they realize the world that they're living in. If you go to persecution.com, then you can um, find out more information, opendoorsusa.org, and you can be on a mailing list, and, and they will tell you how to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. So when we stand up for Jesus, and I said this last week, and we live in a, in a culture where increasingly, where there is suffering within our culture, within Western culture, that if you proclaim the name of Jesus in your classroom as a student, within your workplace or whatever, and you do it, you can do it respectfully. It doesn't matter. Remember, what did I say last week? Anybody here last week? Don't be a... Thank you very much. I'm so glad you remember that. Um, it's not about being a jerk. It's about proclaiming and living for Christ. Is that there will be resistance. But we have to be careful not to minimize the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world. And yet, in the midst of this, and if you hear the stories of brothers and sisters around the world who have experienced this type of thing, there is a blessing in believing that they have that is greater than any suffering or persecution that they find. First Peter verses, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is a blessing in believing. And there's a, there's a difference between seeing something and seeing the evidence of something. 
Now, when I read this, what I went back to is I went back to the encounter of, you ever heard of the disciple of Jesus, one of the 12, um, called Thomas, who's also referred to as Doubting Thomas, right? Because he didn't believe in the resurrection. He said, unless I see him, unless I touch him, I will not believe. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy, shows up. And lets him see him and lets him touch his wounds in his hands and his wound in his side. And this is what Jesus says, or this is what Thomas said in response. My Lord and my God. And this is what Jesus said to Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now, I would gather that Probably nobody here has seen Jesus physically. But has anybody here ever seen the evidence of Jesus? Uh, a couple of years ago, I was hunting um, elk in, in northern Idaho and way up, you know, it was probably about 7,000 foot elevation in this, the Bitterroot Mountains. And I'm walking along and there's snow and I look down and there's a track. I remember I, I put my glove down on, on this track because it, was, it wasn't an elk track. It was a wolf track. And the wolf track was as big as my hand. I put my glove down for the picture. to They're like, oh, that's big. Now, there was evidence of a wolf in the area that made me believe. I did not need to see the wolf to know the wolf was there, there was the evidence of the wolf that was there, and I believed. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul writes these words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Excuse. Yesterday, a couple of friends of mine and I got our motorcycles and uh, rode up to Tahoe and we went um, uh, by, up by Emerald Bay. Ever done that trip? Ever ever gone up to the to you know the summit um, and and then all of a sudden it just opens up and and you look and you see the whole Tahoe Valley. Have you ever just sort of been like, oh wow, this is our backyard, and just been captured by the the beauty? God has revealed Himself, and you know the evidence of Jesus is both internal and external. And God points out in Romans 1, the external creation all around us, but also the miracles of reconciliation. Again, my friend Tom, we were having a conversation, and he was telling the story about being at this conference of Christian um, leaders and uh, being, I think it was at a hotel, and, and all of a sudden, the person he's talking to gets up, and he goes and hugs this other man. And, and the two men that were hugging was one was a radical Muslim jihadist, you know, kill all the Jews person who had a divine encounter with Jesus and was redeemed and saved, and he was hugging his Jewish brother. 
And Tom was saying, only God can do that. I mean, that's a great story. You know, one of the, the, the beautiful things that I've seen here at Cold Springs Church is, that, is the husband and the wife who were like this. And they make a choice to allow Jesus to come in and then become this. Only God. That when we allow Jesus and his reconciliation to come in, that is the evidence of Jesus. That's an external evidence. There are stories around us. But there's also internal, and that is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything, Paul tells us. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Has anybody ever had a peace experience greater than your circumstance? You're like, this isn't me. Nobody? You can raise your hand. This isn't me. There is something greater. God's got a plan. God's got a plan, and he is working that plan out And Peter is reminding these believers that God's got a plan. In verses 10 through 12, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied. And he goes on to say, hey, you know what? Prophets have been looking for this. They've been looking for Jesus, and they've been predicting this. And and look, it has come to fruition in your life. And the things that are going on in your life, persecuted believers, you who are faithful to Jesus, even Angels long to look into this. Even angels are on the edges of seeing, wow, look what God's doing. It's amazing. I tapped into the huge brain reservoir of my brother and uh, uh, pastor here, Steve York, to um, get some of this info. And, and the Old Testament contains over 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Computations using the science of probability on just eight of these prophecies show the chance that someone could have fulfilled all eight prophecies is 10 to the 17th power, or one in 10 quadrillion. That the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus in these prophecies. Watch this video clip. Scholars have determined that Jesus fulfilled at least four dozen major prophecies, each written a minimum of three centuries before his birth. Their content ranged from specific details about his life to the symbolic implications of his death. Psalm 22 gives a poetic picture by David, written in the first person, of what the Messiah will be like in his suffering. And one of the things he says is that they will pierce my hands and my feet. Now, David wrote, before crucifixion was known, probably by about 300 years. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through. It gives us the reason for his death. He was pierced through for our iniquities. So there's a purpose. He dies not just because he's a martyr, but because he's a substitution for sin. A college professor of mathematics and science named Dr. Peter Stoner wanted to determine what the odds were that any human being throughout history could fulfill the messianic prophecies. 
So he had his students come up with very conservative estimates of the likelihood of any human being fulfilling certain of these predictions. And then they just ran the numbers. And what they determined is that the odds of any human being fulfilling 48 of these ancient prophecies would be one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. God's got a plan, and he's been working it out, and you know what? In your life, God's got a plan. He's been working it out all along, and you're a part of that plan. And so here's the thing that you and I need to understand. You need salvation in Jesus. The world needs salvation in Jesus. And this is what Scott McKnight says. He says, the centrality of salvation, a cardinal doctrine, I mean, is central Essential doctrine of the Christian faith is offensive to our culture. To tell somebody, you need to be saved. I don't need to be saved. What are you talking about? To speak of such a need is to be old-fashioned in some sense, is what, how we are seen, or Christianity is seen. At the root of this denial is a view that sees people as essentially good, though possibly hurting through some sickness or victimization, but not one as sinners in the sight of God who need divine grace and recreation. Yeah, you know, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. I don't need to be saved. I'm, I'm okay, you're okay. I was reading a book here recently, um, The Art of Gathering, and, and it was quoted a Sarah Lyle, a New York Times reporter, who wrote about her experience in a participatory theater show in New York, she described herself this way, all of us have an anti-bucket list of things we do not want to do before we die, which is, by the way, true. And mine includes any activity requiring potentially embarrassing public participation, wearing a costume, declaiming before a crowd, playing spin the bottle, clapping along to a jaunty show tune, marching, chanting, speaking spontaneously into a microphone, and listen to this one, ceding free will to a larger force doing the hokey pokey and turning myself about, I have made it my business to avoid these things. Let me share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ABC gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. A, you have to accept who you are, that you are a broken person, way the Bible describes that, the biblical word for that is, is that you are a sinner. We don't like that. I don't like that. But it doesn't mean that it's not true. That we are sinners in need of healing, of hope. And our brokenness is not something that you can fix yourself and neither can all the king's men. We have fallen off the wall and we are broken. We have to accept that. And then we have to believe who Jesus is, that he is the son of God who lived, who died, and was resurrected. So that through his resurrection, through his righteousness, we can have restored relationship with God. Because in, in believing in Jesus, we take on his righteousness, his forgiveness. And the C, 
So accept, believe, and then the C is choose. See, here's the thing is, is that it's not about you. It's all about you. It's all about the work of God. But in the mystery of God, he says, you have to cooperate with me. And you have a choice. I've given you a choice. This life is full of free choice, free will. And you have to choose to commit to follow. And choosing to commit to follow is surrendering. Anybody here like to surrender? Anybody like to give up? I almost swore there for a second. Heck no, I'm not going to give up. It's ceding our free will to a larger force, to Jesus. We have to give up our way, and we have to follow Jesus' way. That's a choice. We talk about it here at Cold Spring Church as saying yes. In this series, it's putting Jesus first. There's a card there in the chair in front of you that says say yes on there. There's a prayer there that's the A-B-C prayer. Have you received Jesus? Have you accepted who you are? Have you believed who Jesus is? Have you chosen to commit to follow him? Only you can do it. God's already done his work. So if that is a decision, and I'm going to give you a chance to pray this morning, if you can pray that prayer, then our starting point, Steve and Esther are out in the lobby. They would love to talk with you and to sit down and say, what's your next step within this? By the way, we'll probably talk about baptism too. Because that would be a next step. So how, how do we work this out? How do we work out Peter's words to us today? Well, here's a question for you. Is, is it how can you start with God more in your life? How can you put God first? How can you start with God? Here's a suggestion. Do you read the Bible? Do you do a devotion? I, I have the privilege of doing, uh, I've started doing this devotion with the Bible app uh, with guys. And um, so I think the last group we had about 25, 22, 25 guys. Do you want to do a devotion? Because I need to start another one. Do you want to do a devotion with me every day? Uh, use that welcome card and sign up there and tell, say, Dave, David's devotion. And I'll send you an invitation. You can join. And you do it on your own time. You can write comments or not. But start your day with Jesus. So what's your story of salvation? Have you, have you said yes? You said yes. Uh, fantastic. When's the last time you told someone your story? Here's my challenge to you this week. Remember, because we're talking about, say, you know, put Jesus first in your life and put Jesus first in your relationships with others, is that pray that God will give you an opportunity to tell your story of your encounter with Jesus this week. And then when it happens, do it. Just blunder into it. Let it go, and then stop talking before you think you're done. That's probably a good rule. And then listen to what the questions might be. And then the last, what suffering are you experiencing now? What suffering are you experiencing now? Are you willing to surrender yourself to a Jesus to allow him to do his work in you? Because he will. And every time you feel yourself going like this to that struggle, that, that pain, Here's it's the invitation that you would open up your hand 
do that with me right now. Make a fist, everybody. Open up your hand. See, because with an open hand, you can give to Jesus, and Jesus can give to you. With a closed fist, all you do is you rebel. Open your hands. Give it to Jesus and allow him to come in. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3, 15. Let's pray. And I'm going to start with a prayer. If you have never crossed that line of faith, if you've never said yes to Jesus, then these aren't magic words. Use your words, but they would be words like this. Jesus, this morning, I want to say yes to you. I don't like having to call myself a sinner to acknowledge my brokenness, but I accept that that is where I am. And I believe that you have the power to make me new, that I can be born again And so I believe in you, Jesus, that you lived, that you died, and that you are alive, that you are resurrected, so I can be resurrected. And right now, I choose to commit to follow you as much as I know. I don't know what that means, but I'm thankful that you will hold on and never let go. Jesus, I pray for us as a community that you would help us to love each other well, to encourage each other, help each other to walk faithfully in leading with you in our life and in our relationships, and that the world would see more and more of you and less and less of us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.